0: You can open your Bibles with me to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. Lord willing, we will cover verses 15 through 19 this morning. 15 through 19. So if you're able, I'll ask you to stand with me at this time. And we'll read together John chapter 21, verses 15 through 19. Beginning in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast... This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. Thank you. You may be seated. As you're being seated, I'll ask you to bow with me to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, O Lord, I do thank You for this day. I thank You for Your Word, for the great privilege that it is to read it, To declare it to others. Father I thank you that you sent the living word. The incarnate word Jesus Christ into the world. Father I pray that we would see what significance in relationship these things have to do with the coming of Christ into the world. Oh Father I suppose it's true to say that every passage of scripture finds its significance in the incarnation of the Son of God. Lord I pray we would see it. Lord, help us to love you, to love your son and grow in our knowledge of him today. Father, I pray that you would guard me from error. Help me to only declare what is true. And Father, I do pray for power. Lord, that you would apply these things from your word to the hearts of your people. Lord, let us see how these things impact us individually. Oh, Father, I pray that you would get glory, all the glory to your name. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the title of this message shown in your bulletin says, Do You Love Him? And I find that to be a very appropriate and fitting title in light of the fact that that question is asked three times in our text by Jesus to Peter. Do you love Him? And I discovered upon completing my notes and going to save the file that I already had a sermon titled, Do You Love Him? And so for your sakes, we can still leave it that way. But another fitting title might be the Lord of Love, the Lord of Love Himself. And I find that has an immediate bearing in my own mind to this Christmas season. One of my favorite Christmas hymns is Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee. And it goes on to say, God of glory, Lord of love in the opening lines. And he is the Lord of love. And I do believe this is very much a Christmas message. Let me explain for a moment what I mean by introduction. I don't usually do this, but it seems very fitting and, and supernatural almost what occurred to me last night. We attended, we went over to Burlington, to Old Town, where they have all the Christmas things set up. And lo and behold, in the barn there, there's a little area where they have a man dressed up like Santa Claus, talking to kids, taking pictures, very nice. Well, we get into this room, and the chair, the rocking chair that this Santa figure is supposed to sit in, was vacant. There were no other chairs in the room. So I thought, well, I'll sit down for a moment. And wouldn't you know, before long, kids start gathering in, and my beautiful wife suggested, well, why don't you go ahead and read the real Christmas story to all these kids? Room full of people. So I opened up the scriptures to Luke chapter 2 and started reading. And you could have heard a pin drop in the room. And next thing I know, the man dressed like Santa walks in and sees me sitting in his chair reading the real Christmas story. And he waited and he listened. He was very kind, a nice man. And when we got done, he said, that was just beautiful. Thank you. And so all the people in there got to hear the real Christmas story from the Scriptures. Well, then the man, he starts talking with me more and more. And I, you know, there's a historical fact that the original, the real St. Nicholas was a Christian who loved Jesus very much. And he got in a fist fight with a man at the Council of Nicaea for saying Jesus wasn't God. Well, I start relaying this to this Santa figure. And he said, yeah, that's really good. That's really good. And he said, but, you know, he said, I guess I would be even more impressed if. If Jesus, if he was just a man, so it doesn't really matter to me whether he's man or God, and I'm thinking, the original St. Nicholas punched somebody in the face for saying that, and you're saying that. And we had an interesting conversation from that point, but here's my overarching point that when we look at the coming of Christ into the world, and I share that story for this reason, that the point is we're going to be asking, do you love Christ? And here's a man, I don't know his spiritual condition, but he was content to believe in a Jesus who was only a man. The point is that if you celebrate this time of Christmas, you look at a baby in a manger and you think about the coming of Jesus into the world. As only a man, that is not a Jesus who can save anyone, that he must be God. And so it matters the Jesus whom you love. And as we look at what's revealed about Jesus and his interaction with Peter here today, We're going to see who Jesus really, in fact, is and everything that has to do with His coming into the world. And so by further introduction, I just want to consider some things with you. Most of us are probably familiar with what's happened leading up to this text today. We ought to know very familiar uh, Peter's previous pride and his subsequent failure. Peter had denied the Lord three times. But for the sake of any who may not be familiar with what has actually happened or for us who are familiar, it'll be helpful for us to reconsider what has taken place that leads us to this. Oftentimes we'll read things like this without a fresh sense of what led to it. And I find that it's going to be very helpful for us to look at them again. And so briefly with me, look back at Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. And we'll consider this picture of Peter's failure that leads right into our text today. Matthew chapter 26, begin reading with me at verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. So here in this text, Jesus predicts Peter's denial and his failure. And then fast forward with me to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, we begin to see the unraveling of this failure. Peter says, I'll not deny you, even if none of the others, even if they all fail you and deny you, I won't, he says. Then in John chapter 18, beginning at verse 15, we find this. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. And then look over to verses 25 through 27. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it and at once a rooster crowed. And finally, looking back at Matthew chapter 26, we'll read verse 75 to complete this scene. Matthew chapter 26, looking at verse 75. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times And he went out and wept bitterly. Now, why do I read all of that? Because it's so important that we understand not only for the sake of being right contextually, but that we also are hopefully able to enter in a little bit to what's going on here. Peter one day stands up and says, If all the other people who love you, who are following you fall away, I'm not going to. I'm staying with you arrogantly and boldly declaring he will not fall away. Jesus says, Yes, you will. You're going to fail. You're going to fail. In another place we find Jesus says that Simon, Satan has sought, sought to sift you as wheat. To disturb you, to challenge your faith, to tempt you to sin and fail. But I've prayed for you. And then we see it unfolding in his failure and his denying the Lord. And then we see his bitter weeping at seeing a glimpse of the Lord. And after all of his sin, and we'll consider certainly that it is sin we see in Peter, then we saw after that the Lord's resurrection from the dead. This is just how, what's leading up to this. Peter's failed. The Lord's risen from the dead and appeared to the disciples at least two other times before this. And he spoke in peace to them. He looked right at Peter on that occasion, we can assume. And he said, Peter, look at my scars, as he told the rest of them. Behold, my scars. Look at what I did. It's really me risen from the dead. And finally, today, we see the Lord dealing specifically with Peter about his sin. I want to reemphasize that. We've got to be clear that Peter's denial that led to this restoration in our text today was sinful. It wasn't just a casual, unimportant slip of the tongue. And we might argue and we might think that, well, if I'm in a really intense situation, then my sins don't really count. If I get angry with my spouse because they're being honry to me, then well that's really kind of a lesser sin that God doesn't really care about. You don't get more intense than what Peter was facing standing before the soldiers who had arrested his Lord and were going on to kill and crucify him. His denial was in. He was under duress, we could say. We don't have an excuse for our sin because we're in intense situations. And think of what the Lord had specifically said in Matthew 10:33. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. And in case you're unclear, if you're denied by Jesus before the father, you're not getting into heaven. If the son of God does not grant you entrance into the kingdom of God, you're not getting in. So this is not a small thing that happened in the life of Peter. And the trouble is, even when we consider the backstory leading up to this is that we may often be tempted to look at ourselves as the good guys when we read the Scriptures. We may look at people like Peter or Thomas or the children of Israel and we see their sin and we can become hypercritical of them. And we have a tendency to think, well, if I was in that situation, I would have done better. Have you ever just stopped and thought, if I was there in the garden, I wouldn't have taken the fruit. Probably any of us at one time or another thought, Well, why would they just not leave it alone? They had everything perfect. And we assume that we are the good guy, that we're better. But consider this. (coughs) I read this already from Matthew 26. Verse 31, Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. So keep in mind, Thomas and Peter certainly had these public failures, but they weren't the only ones who failed. They all fell away. They all failed the Lord. But what we see in Peter's denial is that it almost seems to be compounded by his adamant and prideful declaration that he wouldn't fall away, even if others did. If there's an application to us in this already, it's this, that all of us fail the Lord and deny the Lord at some level. And it's not okay, And it's a sinful thing when we do that. But what compounds it and makes it worse is when we look at others who have failed the Lord and we think ourselves somehow better than them for some reason, as though there was something better in me and others who have failed the Lord. And that is more uniquely what's being dealt with in Peter here. His pride, his arrogance, And so the point here today, if you're going to enter in at all, this is the situation in Peter's life. If you want to hear and see in our text today an encouragement for your soul that shows you the great glory of Christ coming into the world, His love for His people, if you're going to enter into that at all today, you're going to have to realize that there's a parallel between ourselves and our sin and what we see in Peter. In other words, if you're not honest about your own sin and you're not honest about your own failures towards the Lord, then there's not going to be anything of any great value to you here today. In Peter's case, it was necessary that he have a night of bitter weeping. Now, my point with you is not that you and I would wallow in our sin and just go around kicking and beating ourselves up over our failures, but a night of grief and bitterness is often necessary to bring us to the level of brokenness that God would have us to be at in order to be restored. But if we don't actually enter into and care about our failures, then we're not very likely to actually deal with. And so if you want to come to realize the greatness of this season, this Christmas season, just I'm reminded again, this man, he said, if you just see the great example that Jesus set for us, this man, Jesus, look at all that he did. The man dressed up like Santa Claus. And I told him, I said, sir. The wonder of Jesus' incarnation is that He did what we could not do. It's not that He came to show us the way to do it, so much as He came to do it in our place, as our substitute, even to death for us. And so if you don't see your own sin and have an awareness of your own failure, which is immediately leading us into our thoughts today, then you're not going to have a proper understanding of the reason the babe was born in Bethlehem to begin with. All of our celebration and singing of songs is going to be empty and vain if we don't enter into that reality. And So here's the one question that I would put to you and myself as well today. Do we love Him? Jesus asked three times, first, do you love Me more than these? And then two more times, do you love Me? Do you love Me? Are we honest about the fact that we don't love Him as we should? Do we see how that's related to the sin and failure itself is that we haven't loved Him the way that we ought. You see, Jesus in our text, we're going to see that His love for us does not ignore our sin, but neither is His love dependent upon our sin or lack of it. And so the final question is, how is it, if you're honest, if you're dishonest, you can sit before me today and you can say, I haven't failed to love Him. I really do love Him. Well, that's a lie. We've all failed to love Him as He deserves But if you're honest about your failure and you see the reality that a denial of Jesus means you don't have access to the kingdom of God, then the question comes, how is it that you're going to have your heart and your soul restored to Him after you failed John chapter 21, we begin looking at verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Something a little bit different we're going to do in our handling of these verses is you'll notice verses 15, 16 and 17 is a repetition of pretty much the same conversation with some slight differences. And so what we're going to do is we're going to draw out the primary points that are expressed in actually all three of these verses. And hopefully we'll see that what's happening as we go through them is it's being emphasized and re-emphasized and re-emphasized. And so we can kind of take them collectively together. But we can begin looking in verse 15. The first thing we see is that it is Jesus who initiates this conversation. What does that have to do with you? It is always God who acts first, never us. It's not as though we strive and climb and pursue and chase God and somehow or another convince him to give us what we need. That's not how it works ever. It's God who initiates. We love because he first loved us. It's God who initiates, whether by the Holy Spirit, even here today, by the mouth of this preacher or the Lord himself, as we see with Peter here. It is God who initiates the restoration of his people. And so I'm curious. Is there anyone here today that God is initiating a conversation with? We're looking at someone who loved the Lord, a true follower of Jesus Christ, Peter, the Apostle Peter. And he is being confronted and initiated by the living Christ concerning his sin in order that he would be restored to fellowship with Christ. And so I wonder, are you aware today that God, as my voice goes forth, is there something other than what I'm saying? you? There must be more than what I'm able to communicate, or this is completely vain and we all might as well have stayed home today. But is God speaking to you? Is God saying something to you that your soul needs to hear through the message being proclaimed? We see with Jesus, he is initiating the discussion with Peter. I wonder if any of us can relate with Peter's tears or even the anxious guilt that Peter was dealing with here. Jesus initiates and think of this. It's been weeks since Peter failed. It's been weeks. We know this at least because Peter failed. That night, there was at least a three-day period between Jesus, between Peter's failure and Jesus' resurrection. And then Jesus met with them that third day whenever He'd risen from the dead. And then we find it was a whole week later that He met with them the second time. And so we don't know how many days after the second appearance this even is. So we're talking about weeks at least. At least two to three weeks from Peter's failure. I wonder, I know personally that whenever I've failed and sinned against the Lord, that as time goes by, the longer the time goes by between my failure and being restored to fellowship with the living God, the more it just eats at you and eats at you and just steals everything from you. And I just imagine Peter and the anxious guilt that he must have been feeling. And it's interesting that before Peter's denial, it's hard to read the scriptures without seeing Peter opening his mouth to say something. Isn't that true? Peter's always the first one to voice his opinion and say something to lead the others. I can identify not always in the best way, but he always voices his opinion. He's very outgoing. But it's interesting to note that from the time Peter denied the Lord until our text today, Peter has been uncharacteristically silent. We've seen some minor interactions with him and John going to the tomb. But other than that, we really haven't seen Peter saying or doing a lot. Almost as though he's been paralyzed by his failure, by his sin. And I look at these things in light of Peter and I wonder how many of us have sin in our lives that we've been struggling with secretly and feelings of guilt, unworthiness to approach Christ because of our sin. The encouragement from the beginning today is this, is you need to know that we serve a God who condescends to us in the midst of our failure, and He summons us forth from our sin and misery. Peter is in such a miserable situation, and even though he dove into the water off the boat, swam to the shore, you get the picture that he's just kind of silently standing there, unworthy to be there until it's Jesus who initiates the conversation. And that we would see that God is fully prepared to do that with us. But you have to hear this. If you are not hearing from God and seeing God's appeal to you to return to Him in the way that Peter does here, you're not going to see what's set in front of you. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? The second thing we see is that Jesus brings a loving conviction to Peter. He brings conviction to Peter. And it's multiple ways that Jesus is convicting Peter here. And I say it's loving conviction. This is the Lord of love. The whole focus of this message and interaction is love. But love does not mean that there's not conviction. That there's not rebuke. As a matter of fact, if the love you have for someone doesn't at times involve criticism and rebuke, it's not biblical love. Jesus lovingly rebukes Peter in our text a number of ways. The first way this is depicted is the question itself. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? You see, Peter had said essentially before, I love you more than these. That's what he's saying when he says, even if all these other disciples fall away, I won't fall away. What he's saying is, I love you more than they do, Lord. And it's interesting, the contrast that we're given in John's description of himself. Peter says, I love you more than them. John says, I'm a disciple whom the Lord loved. But here's the point. Jesus addresses his arrogant declaration of loving him more than the other disciples. He confronts his own self-righteousness compared to others. Jesus confronts it when he says, do you love me more than these? And it is encouraging that the Lord doesn't do that more than once. He asks in the first verse 15, do you love me more than these? But then in verses 16 and 17, He doesn't focus on the do you love me more than these. He doesn't continue to gouge the knife in deeper. He addresses it. He brings it up. And then he focuses on the main issue, the primary issue. Do you love me? And so we see that. And I'm afraid that probably for ourselves, we often can. It's easy. And I mentioned this already, but we can look at other people and we can imagine ourselves to be more righteous than they are. And that's exactly what Peter was doing, essentially. But whenever we do that, it's often the case that we realize that our self-trust, my confidence in myself is misplaced. (coughs) And when that happens, it is a bitter thing to swallow. So the first form of conviction Jesus brings is he rebukes Peter essentially in the question for his arrogance by comparison to the other disciples. The second way Jesus brings conviction to Peter and to us is that he identifies the root of. Of all sin. What is the ultimate root of all sin? What is it? If you could boil it down, you might say pride or idolatry. There are many things you might say, but I'm going to argue on the authority of Scripture that the root of all sin is not loving the Lord your God. If you want to boil it down, if I were loving God as supreme, I could never do anything that was against the God I love. That's the root of all sin. And it's glorious and wonderful that Jesus confronts the root of his sin. Consider this, Matthew 22, 37 through 38. And he said to him, Jesus speaking, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And so we can put it this way, that if loving God is the great and first commandment, every other commandment is dependent upon that one. If I were only loving God as I ought to love God, then I would never come to love anything else more than Him. If I value and esteem the living God above all things, then He's the one I'm going to serve and honor and pursue. Sin, whatever its application, comes from a heart that is not loving God. And we find in Romans thirteen ten, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Do you want to know what it means to fulfill the law of God? In every fashion is love. If you don't love, then you're not going to fulfill the law. You could do everything perfectly, externally, righteously, and have no righteousness in you if you don't have love. Is that not the argument of 1 Corinthians 13 as well? I could do all these mighty things, even speak in the tongues of angels, but if I don't have love, it's meaningless, it's pointless. And that love is not first and foremost horizontal towards others. It's first towards God. I must love God. So Jesus identifies the issue of Peter's sin and challenging him in his love. Now, here's another encouraging thing. Jesus doesn't focus primarily on the external manifestation of Peter's sin. This is one of the reasons why I believe that all the the vast majority of Modern, popular psychology and counseling practices are completely wrong and unbiblical. It's because at worst, they only focus on the externals. Let's stop the behavior. Let's address the behavior issues. And then maybe they think, okay, there's some issue inside the person. There's something on the inside that's producing the behavior. But they never get to the heart of love towards God. And anything that stops short of that is at best a band-aid. And at worst, it's going to produce more sin and difficulty. Jesus doesn't focus on the external thing. Jesus doesn't say, Peter, you're denying me. You need to stop denying me. He deals with the heart, the root. What's producing that denial? What is it inside Peter that actually deal, needs to be dealt with? He doesn't go on grading him or bashing him over the head. And I wonder even as parents how guilty we often are of that. Can you relate with this as a parent or a grandparent or anyone? Do you see the little ones are acting up and you think they need to stop the behavior? What's wrong with you? Without ever addressing the heart that's producing the behavior. If you're only interested in the externals, that's going to be nothing but a pharisaical whitewashed tomb. Jesus says, I'm after the heart. Do you love me? He's interested in the heart. And you know there are people who spend their entire lives just simply cutting off and pruning bad fruit, which is going to be replaced with more bad fruit, because they've never gotten to the root. So the question is, have you gotten to the root of your sin? Loving God. When they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? The third way that Jesus convicts Peter lovingly here as he refers to him by the name that he had formerly gone by, Simon, son of John. Did you notice that? There's one other occasion that I'm familiar with that Jesus refers (coughs) to Peter as Simon, son of John, other than this one after he's called him. You know what it is? Whenever Jesus asks, who do men say that I am? And then he goes and asks, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. He refers to him that way. Now that's a unique instance. Do you know why? Because then he goes on to say, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. He brings up who you are physically, according to the flesh, is Simon Bar-Jonah. Simon, son of John. That's what he tells him. It's related to his lineage. But every other time, he's referred to as Peter or Cephas. It was Jesus who said, you're going to be called Cephas. You remember that from John one forty two? Andrew goes and gets Peter, his brother, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So here in our text, isn't it interesting that you find Jesus saying, Simon, son of John. Why is he not calling him Peter any longer? Why isn't he calling him Cephas? Well, it's an indication, I believe, in the text that Jesus is presenting to Peter the reality that he's behaving like the person that he used to be. Here's my question. Has the Holy Spirit ever made you individually to realize that in the moment you're behaving like the person you were before Christ? Do you need to be reminded even here today that that's not who you are anymore? Jesus said you're going to be called Cephas, not Simon anymore. You're going to be called Cephas. And then he's denied the Lord and entered into sin. And Jesus says, Simon, here's old Simon back here on the surface. Simon. Or maybe... Maybe you're still the same person you've always been. Maybe you're still Simon, son of John. You're the, if you're the same person you've always been according to how you've been born in the flesh, then you, you need to listen very closely. Perhaps you should be summoned even now for the very first time to come and receive a new name and a new heart. You see, if you don't, if you're not changed in the way that He had been, then you're going to be enslaved to your sin. And you're going to remain in that condition unless and until Jesus Christ gives you both a new heart and a new name. And imagine the crippling nature of this. Your Lord and Master who said you're going to be given a new name, a different name, refers you to your old name. And it's like, I know you felt this way as I have. Why am I doing? This isn't who I am anymore. Why why am I drawn to this sin that I know is dishonoring to my God? That's not who I am anymore. Perhaps that's related to why Paul says reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. Realize who you are in Christ. You're not that person any longer if you're in Christ. But for Peter, he had been born again. He had been called by the Lord. He had been given a new name. He was a believer who needed to be reminded who he was and what the Lord had done for him. So how does Peter respond to all of this pressing conviction? He said to him in verse 15, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And so, does Peter, does that sound a little bit different than what we've seen from Peter before this point? Before this happens, Peter's very full of himself, very confident, and here he gives a... I believe, and maybe it's because of my understanding of the previous things that have happened in my own experiences of being humiliated by the Lord for my own growth, but I believe this expression from Peter reeks... Of humiliation. He's being drawn out. He's having the question put to him. I don't see any shred of arrogance in what Peter says here. But broken humility. Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. I can almost imagine Peter whispering this in response. Yes, Lord. Before I imagine, and maybe it's just me, but I imagine a loud voice. I'll not deny you even if all of these others do. But here almost comes across as a soft and gentle whisper that Peter, Jesus convicts him by bringing up his declaration of being greater than the others. And Peter says yes, but he doesn't address the others at all, does he? I know he's going on to ask about what's going to happen to John at the end of this book of the Bible. But at least for now, it's like Peter's not even wanting to talk about what's going to happen with the other people. It's only himself and his own failure. And it seems that all the trappings of self-confidence have been removed from Peter. And the only thing he's left with is a very simple statement of truth and an appeal to the Lord's understanding. This is significant. Peter doesn't appeal to his own estimation of himself. Isn't this glorious? Peter doesn't say, why, yes, Lord, I know that I know that I know. I've got every confidence that I love you and I believe in you. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Isn't that the question? At the end of the day, your evaluation of your love for Jesus Christ is worth absolutely nothing. What really is going to matter on the final day is his evaluation of you. And he knows truly your heart. And that ought to call you to a kind of desperate dependence that I think is demonstrated in Peter's answer. Lord, you know that I love you. And when I stand before you, it's your knowledge and your estimation of me is the only one I'm going to trust. It's a simple... And childlike faith and love for Christ that will endure. And we are, even as Peter was, we are today dependent upon Him. Dependent upon Christ, who is the judge of our faith. He's the judge of our love. We're dependent on Him to supply us with faith and love and to sustain that faith and love. So Peter says, yes, Lord, You know that I love You. And then how does Jesus answer and respond to Peter? He said to him, Feed my lambs. Here we're reminded of what I've been telling you is the overarching context of this section of Scripture, which is what? Restoration to ministry. Restoration to ministry. You see, Peter's salvation was never at any time dependent upon his own righteousness. I would argue from the foundation of the world, Peter's soul would have been just as secure in Christ if this interaction had never happened. Jesus died for his sins on the cross and that work would not be undone. We're not talking about Peter in jeopardy of hell throughout this period we're looking at here. That's not the point. It's a restoration of fellowship and a call to ministry. And the truth is, the encouraging thing is that Peter's salvation was not dependent on this exchange and neither is yours. Neither is yours. You know, it's kind of a sad thing within the Roman Catholic tradition. That if you have some sin in your life that you don't get to confess before you die, well, you're going to end up paying for that somehow or another, whether in purgatory or something. And it's a glorious truth that as a Christian, if you've been bought by the blood of Christ, if you die the moment after having a sinful thought, your soul is secure in Christ. It cannot be undone. There is security. What we're seeing is not Peter's salvation. It's not Peter having his sins done away with. He's having fellowship with the Lord restored. You see, Peter's ability to feed and minister to others was hindered so long as his fellowship with the Lord remained broken. Now, we've already seen that it's not Peter's righteousness or the others that's going to produce the fish. I'll make you fishers of men was not contingent upon their righteousness. It was Jesus' righteousness. But Peter's usefulness to the Lord practically on a human level was very much impacted by his broken fellowship with the Lord. And Peter needed his soul to be restored if he was going to be a help and encouragement to others. It's reminded of a quote by George Mueller. Do you know who George Mueller was? Famous for all the orphanages that he ran and children he took care of. As I understand it, he was a criminal, a crook, and stole things before he was converted. And when he became a Christian, all of a sudden he dedicates his life to giving money and helping people. And a great testimony of serving God. The great thing about him was he never told anybody the needs that he had. He would pray and tell God the needs they had, but he wouldn't tell people asking for money. He would pray and God provided. Well, this quote from George Mueller, he says this, I tell you that because this is a man of great activity. He did many things serving God. He wasn't a lazy Christian who sat around doing nothing. A very busy man. And this is what he said one time. George Mueller said, the primary business I must attend to every day is to fellowship with the Lord. The first concern is not how much I might serve the Lord, but how my inner man might be nourished. You see that displayed in Peter here? If you're going to be a, Minister to others. If you're going to feed my lambs and tend my sheep, you need your fellowship with the Lord restored. You need to have a confident sense of God with you if you're going to be able to help or encourage anyone else. And so if any of us would be a help to others, how how true is this? I just think about this with my own spouse. How easy is it if I'm trying to and she's not in here? So. If, if I'm wanting to love and serve her, it's impossible. It's utterly impossible. If I haven't first gone to my Lord and God and fellowshiped and communed with him, how on earth am I going to be of any benefit to her? Or what about your children? How are you going to, in all the busyness of your life, try to minister to them at all? Sometimes the thing we need the most is to step away from our labors and say, Lord, I need to commune with you right now so that I can be helpful to anybody else. That's what's displayed in this. The fellowship restored with an aim and a goal and a purpose in the future towards ministering to others. If we're going to help anyone else, we must first have humble and repentant hearts towards Christ and seek our fellowship with him. Before we can do anything else. And We consider verse 16 and we'll consider these next two verses Lightly, if you will, because they're expressing the same things we're seeing in verse 15. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. The significance of everything we're looking at in verse 15 here is just doubled down and repeated. The Lord presses him again with these things. And so again, I press you and I with the same thing. Remember the pattern we're seeing here. Are we sensitive to our own sin and failure? Jesus addresses His sin and failure. So we must press and realize our own sin and failure. Do we see the root of all our sin and failure being in a lack of love for God? And then have we had our love for Him restored? And then finally, and I believe this is absolutely fitting, does our love for Christ find an expression in ministry toward others? This is a unique calling for Peter as one who was an apostle, as one who would shepherd the early church. But it also carries a measure of significance for us as well. You remember what Jesus said? This is how the world will know that you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. That if our fellowship with Christ has been restored, one of the greatest evidences of it will be there will be an expression of love and ministry towards other Christians. If your desire to love and minister to others is not very strong, let me suggest to you, you need your communion with God restored. How can you have close communion with the living God and not have a burden and a love for His people for whom Christ died? They go hand in hand. And then again in verse 17, the pattern continues. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So the question comes a third time and it is emphasizing the importance of these things. But there is something additional that's brought in this third question in light of Peter's particular failure. Why was it that this third question grieved Peter so? I'm sure the first two questions grieved Peter, but John highlights for us the fact that the third one grieved him. Why so? Well, we're reminded here, and Peter's reminded here, you know it was the Lord who foretold his denial. When Peter says, Lord, you know all things, you suppose that's related to the fact that Jesus was the one who told him, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows? Jesus knew his failure before he ever failed. So there's a relationship here, but the grief, I believe, comes from this reality. He's reminded of the specific nature of his failure all three times. But the encouragement is that he's being restored here and given three opportunities to profess his love for Christ. Surely was a bitter reminder for Peter that Jesus knew all along that he was going to fail in the way exactly that he failed. But doesn't it also come as a great encouragement that the Lord's love for Peter never stopped during that time? You see what I'm saying here? What an encouragement that the Lord looks and says, Peter, you're going to deny me. But then he never stopped at any point loving Peter. And here he is continuing to love Peter, continuing to address, to to condescend to and speak to Peter's issues and restoring him. That though the Lord knew of his sin all along, he was ready to receive him back all along and. The reality and application to us is that our sin, your sin against God, can never separate you from his love, which is in Christ. If you think that the love of God means I can live willy nilly and go do and live in any kind of sin that I want to live in, it doesn't really matter. We're not understanding the love of God at all. It certainly is going to bring grief and sorrow to your soul. The Lord disciplines and reproves those whom he loves. But the great antidote for our sin is found in remembering and being called back once again to his unending love. That's what's demonstrated here. Jesus all along knew the failure of Peter, and yet his love never lessened at all. The truth is, is that Jesus, he's the one who died for you while you were still a sinner. And the one who died for you while you were yet a sinner is in no jeopardy of stopping loving you when you sin. But the call is to return to him, to have your fellowship restored, not that you might be saved. If you're in Christ, you will be, but that you would have that sense of fellowship with God restored and be able to minister to others. This leads us into our last two verses, and we'll take these together. Verses 18 and 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. i pause for a moment because some of you might be thinking, well, that sounds like a retirement tunnel. I'm going to let you know that's not what he said. John tells us, and it's a wonderful thing. John interprets that for us in verse 19. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, "'Follow me.'" Now let me ask you, what is verse 18 telling us about death? How is this indicating the way that Peter's going to die? You know, it's a historical fact that Peter was crucified upside down. He had his hands stretched out. He's saying when you're young, right now essentially you're walking, you're moving, you're going where you want, dressing yourself, but the time's going to come for you to die. Your hands are going to be stretched out and somebody else is going to do something to you you don't want done to you. And this is going to be related to your death and the way you're going to glorify God. These last two verses, I believe, demonstrate for us one of Christ's purposes in restoring Peter. Make no mistake, the Lord loves His own. If you belong to Christ and you failed Him, He will come to you. Maybe right now He's coming to you saying, return to Me through the sound of My voice. Return to the Lord. That's certainly important. But what we also see is the Lord has a purpose for Peter that's coming in the future. You see, Peter needed something in order to be able to endure such an excruciating death. The first time Peter says, even if they all deny you, I'll not. I'll even die with you, Lord. Where was his confidence? What was he trusting in? Was it not his self, his own great strength of faith, his own resolve, his own fortitude? If you look at the world, which seems to be getting worse and worse, and you say, whenever they come after me for being a Christian, I'm going to stand. If you're confident in yourself, you'll likely fall. And so will I. But what is it exactly that Peter's being conditioned for here? You see, the true source of being able to stand for Christ, in even the most severe opposition, is going to come from being rooted in a knowledge of His love for you. And having your love for Him kindled into a burning flame. Consider this. This is no surprise. This has been coming all along. Consider this back from John chapter 13. You may remember this. In light of Peter's situation specifically. John 13, 36-38. Simon Peter said to Him, Lord, where are You going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, You cannot follow Me now, but You will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So you see what Jesus even told him already? You cannot follow me now. You can't go where I'm going now, but you will follow me someday. What's going to happen to me is going to happen to you, just not yet. In other words, Peter, you're not ready to face what's coming. You're not grounded in the right thing. You're confident in yourself, your own strength, but you need something else. A humble dependence upon me. You see, Peter was unable to follow Christ to death as long as his pride was intact. Peter needed his pride to be shattered up against the rock of God's providential love. And God's providential love, sometimes it's going to be pruning and hurtful to you. You may suffer, you may face all manner of bitter weeping, but God will be faithful to do it. In order that your dependence would be on Him and not yourself. And we know that Peter would indeed follow after his Lord. But only after having his love for Christ rooted in the right place. His confidence in Christ's love. And you might be sitting there thinking, I thought you said this was going to be related to Christmas. Well, surely it is. What is the rock that we must have beneath our feet to stand for Christ? What is it exactly that must produce in us a great love for Jesus that's going to weather the storms of affliction? Why is it that we celebrate His birth and coming into the world at all? You see, the church has been under attack from heresies and false teachings since it began. And even the most notable figure of this time for many people, St. Nicholas, the one historically who punched a man for saying Jesus wasn't God. The church coming under attack for the truth of the Scriptures, A man who is celebrated at this time, looking me in the eye and saying, well, I don't think it matters whether Jesus was God or not. It certainly matters. The Jesus we're seeing is showing us the heart of God towards his people and convicting them of sin and restoring them to himself. We celebrate his birth and his coming into the world, not because he came as some example of how we ought to live. So I asked the question we started with, what reason do you have for loving Jesus? Do you love Him at all? How is it that you're going to measure your love for Christ? Are you loving the right Jesus? If you're not loving the one of this book, there's no consolation or hope for you. I want to just consider for a moment with you in closing the way in which Peter fulfilled what Jesus says here. Jesus says, do you love me? If you love me, then feed my sheep, feed my lambs, tend my sheep. Well, what did that exactly look like? Do you remember whenever Jesus in one of the accounts, we won't go there for the sake of time today, but in one of the accounts were given of Jesus foretelling Peter's denial. I mentioned it earlier. Jesus says that Satan has sought to sift you as wheat. And he says that I've prayed for you. And when you turn again, strengthen the brothers. It was necessary that Peter fail that he might be an encouragement to the others, able to feed and minister to the others. Well what do you suppose Peter's encouragement to the others looked like after he was restored? Well listen with me from 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 through 12 and see if you can see some relationship between the confidence that Peter had in Christ after these things occurred and the relationship that our trials and even difficulties have with these things. 1 Peter chapter 1 beginning in verse 3 Do you think Peter knew that he was being guarded by God's power? He who had failed was being kept and guarded and loved by Christ the entire time. He had a sense of God's power to uphold him even in his own failure. Do you see that for you? Do you see that if you're in Christ and you have not fallen away, it's only by the grace of God holding you up. It's nothing in yourself. He says... In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. The trials come, the difficulties come, just like with Peter, and you're grieved by them. What for? It was necessary that Peter be grieved according to his sin, that he have his confidence taken off of himself and placed on Christ. He says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Now, there's a striking expression. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? The main point in all of this is, do you love him? Peter challenges and he writes to these exiles, elect exiles, and says this. You love him, though you haven't seen him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully. Now pause again. Here we have Christmas message again. There's a prophesied, come thou long expected Jesus. He's been looked forward to for centuries. The promised Messiah from God. They looked into it. Here he's come inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things in which angels long to look. Here's the message. We look at unto us a child is born. What significance does that have? Inquiring what person or time? What person or time? Galatians 4.4 tells us. It was in the fullness of time that God sent forth His Son. Jesus came incarnate in Bethlehem in the fullness of time. In order what for? That He might redeem those who were cursed by the law. And save them by dying for their sin on the cross. That's the Jesus we're seeing and he can't do that if he's not both God and man. And these are the great realities of the love of Christ, which ought to warm your heart. If you're not rooted and grounded in his love for you basking in the wonder of his love, you'll not stand. But if you're his, he's calling you to see him return and be restored to him. I say the point of this section in John. Is primarily restoration to ministry, but make no mistake, as a Christian, there is no being restored to ministry without being personally, individually restored. And that's not unimportant. But if you're outside of Christ here today, what greater hope could you have? The good news that Christ has come and he died to save you from your sins. He bore the wrath of God in the place of sinners. He rose from the dead. Is there any greater demonstration of love? Any greater picture of glory than this? This That's why I love to sing this time of year. And I'll tell you just in closing, I suppose my favorite Christmas hymn is probably, well, there are many, but it might be perhaps, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. You all sang that beautifully today. But did you enter into the words of it? Whenever you sing, hark, the herald angels sing. The angels are declaring the glories of Christ who has come. Do you enter in with the heart of what that message is? Hark, the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Why? Why glory to him? Peace on earth and mercy mild. This one who should destroy us is long suffering with us and endures with much long suffering the sins that we have committed. And then we find peace on earth and mercy mild. What's the next line? God and sinners reconciled. The reconciling love of God in Christ. There is no greater message. And those are the realities that Peter's being reminded of as he's face to face with the living God, with Christ in our text. And I pray that you've come face to face with them. Reminded of your sin. Seeing that there is an issue between you and God. Whether as a Christian or for the first time. There's something hindering fellowship with God. Christ has dealt with it with His own blood. That message. And then saying, oh, this God who has redeemed me. Calls me to right relationship with Him. To seeing His love and my love for Him in light of His love for me. And being moved with the desire to go and minister to others. That's the pattern of Peter's restoration. And I pray that it would be the same for us. And so with those things, I'll call you once again as a Christian, be restored to God, restored to fellowship with Christ through these things, through His voice coming to you and to the lost, that you would repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ things I'll ask you to bow and we'll close in the word of prayer. Heavenly Father, O oh Lord, can even the greatest proclamations of men be seen as anything but weak and miserable? You're worthy of so much more than I'm able to give you. Yet, O oh God, I thank you that your love is not dependent on what I can give, but what your Son gave. I ask that you would stir our hearts, Lord, that we might fully enter in to the glories of what you've done for us. Father, grow us in our relationship with you. Help us be useful in ministering to and reaching others. Father, I pray that our fellowship would be right with you, that we would walk by your spirit and not carry out the deeds of the flesh. Oh, Father, please direct us for your kingdom and your glory. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.